please take your Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. There are no notes this morning. I don't think you'll need them. And this morning, we're only going to look mainly at one word and verse 14. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. Let me read the whole sentence. For how much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This morning, we're going to look at one term. I thought that we should pause and just look at this one term that we haven't or don't normally consider that much, and that's the term conscience. So we're just going to look at that term, and we'll look at other places in the Bible, but mainly we're going to study what does this mean, cleanse your conscience? And we'll just focus on that word. But let me pray. Lord, we thank you for all the great truth that we just sung about you. We thank you for your deep, deep love. Your love has been unfailing. And we praise you and thank you for that, Lord. And now as we continue to worship you and your word, we do pray, Lord, we believe your word. And so we pray that your word would do its work within us. Revive us, Lord, as it says in Psalm 19. Give us your wisdom, Lord, we pray, as we study your word. For Christ's sake, amen. Sunday is the Lord's day. Sunday is the holy day of God. Day when I was, when I was years of age, that's what I used to tell myself. Sunday is God's day. So on that day, I did not get high. But when I was ages of 10 to 13, not every day, but many days, I would get high with weed or speed or quaaludes. Maybe get low, is what you say, with some of those drugs. But my conscience would not let me do that on Sunday. Sunday, maybe I would smoke a cigarette, because that was less sinful. But during the week, my conscience would be, in a sense, it would say, doing these drugs is wrong, but Sunday, that's God's day. And so you have to keep that holy. Now, I was an unbeliever. I, I wasn't saved. But even being unsaved, there was still part of me that would say, Tom, what you're doing is wrong for many different reasons. And so in my, in my thoughts... I thought, if I could just keep one day holy to God, then that would cleanse me. When I was 13, God gave me grace, and through a Sunday school teacher, I was the only one in his class, I understood that I was a sinner, and I needed to be saved by his grace. My mother would always tell me, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, by grace you've been saved through faith, it's not of yourself, matter of works, lest anybody should boast. Tom, you need to be saved. And my Sunday school teacher took me through the book of Romans. And God opened my eyes, and I repented and asked him to save me. And the drugs and, and fighting and even vandalism, all of that went away uh, very, very quickly. As a believer, of course, I, I'm i not perfect yet, and I still sin. And there are times, even now, when my conscience will, will will still bother me about certain things. Is that true for you? Yes, I think it is. In fact, if you have a healthy conscience, then your conscience at times will bother you. If your conscience never bothers you, then something's wrong. <laughs> you might have seared or burned or hardened your conscience through persistent unconfessed sin. Even as a believer, there are times when there is sin in our life, and if we don't deal with that sin, then in the back of our heads, or you can say in the deep recesses of your heart, yes, the Holy Spirit, but even the Holy Spirit working on your conscience as a believer, is how can you be witnessing to that person? 
all the sin that you've been doing. Should you really be witnessing? Should I serve at church? Should I even go to church with the sin that I've done, that's secret, that, that really nobody knows about? And so that your conscience is working inside of you. This type of gift that God has given, and then being saved, your conscience is, in a sense, even more dynamic and even more renewed and is bringing conviction. And if we don't respond to it, then our service will be hindered. And I think in a large degree, that's what Hebrews 19, sorry, 9, 14 is after when it says, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And we talked a little bit about it last week. And that is, we have to be careful about serving to be clean. Rather, we need to be cleansed to serve. That is, we need to be sure that we have a right relationship with God. And then out of that, we serve. Otherwise, our conscience will be bothering us and our service will be hindered. So then, to serve the Lord effectively, you must develop a healthy conscience. That's that's the main point. To serve the Lord effectively, so you're not serving from dead works, that is, from bad motivation or from having unconfessed sin in your life or sin that you're not at least seeking to deal with, so your conscience is always nagging at you, your service to some degree will be hindered. We don't want to live that way. We have a, a living God, a God that... And in this context, in Hebrews 9.14, when it says the living God, a, a God that is not a stone, but a God that is a person. We're people because we're made in the image of God. God has personhood more than we do. He, he's not a rock. He, he's not a, a tree. He, he, he's real. And therefore, we want to be right with him. So how can we have this healthy conscience? so that we can love God and even serve one another effectively? Well, we have to ask two questions. First, what is the conscience, and then how do we keep it healthy? What is the conscience, and then how do we keep it healthy? First, what is the conscience? I I don't know, for the children nowadays, I think you're very impoverished if you're under the age of 55. You may not have seen Daffy Duck or the Roadrunner or Bugs Bunny. But way, many, many decades ago, they would have on TV one of these cartoon characters, and there may be a situation where this character, maybe Daffy Duck, was tempted to do something that was bad. And on his shoulder, there'd be a what? There'd be a red little devil with a pitchfork. Do it, do it, do it, do it. Like, hurt this person, lie to this person. It's going to be okay. Nobody will catch you. And then on the right shoulder was an angel with a halo. Don't do that. You're going to hurt that person and even hurt yourself and cause much harm. And for a long time, that's what I thought, in a sense, the conscience was. That is not the conscience. The conscience is not that you have an angel talking to you. Michael the archangel is not saying, do this, Tom. Do it. Don't do that. It's not that you have Satan here and an angel here telling you what to do or what not to do. So that's not the conscience. What is the conscience? It's actually used in the Bible many times. One of the most detailed descriptions is in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. And so we're just going to look at several verses three or four verses to get an idea of what the conscience is and what it does. Now, the the word itself is sunidesis, from two words, together and knowledge. It's a compound word. One word means together, and the other means knowledge. It's the idea of putting something together. But we want to get the definition of the word from how it's used. So, Look with me at Romans 2.14, and it's talking about pagans, Gentiles, unbelievers. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, that is the written law of God, do instinctively the things of the law, they don't steal, maybe, not having the law are a law to themselves, 
in this way, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God would judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So, several things about conscience, I think, that we can learn from this verse. You can see here, it's a component or a mechanism, maybe you could say an apparatus of the heart. You can see that in verse 15. It says, they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness to them. Because when you have, in verse 15, it says the law written in their hearts, in opposition to that, not opposition, but opposition, renaming, redescribing, is their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts ultimately accusing or else defending them. The heart in the Bible is not usually the, the red muscle, but it's the idea of the headquarters of who you really are in the inside. And it's saying there's a, not, not the law, but the work of the law is written there even for an unbeliever. Another way to describe that is that the conscience. So the, the law, the work of the law written on the inner man of even an unbeliever, that part of the heart, that dynamic that's inside, that is the conscience. Remember, every person is made an image of God. And so this image of God that even an unbeliever bears, it has not the law of God, but this effect of the law of God, that God is holy, that we should not be unloving, but love others and be faithful, so forth. And further, we can also, as I've just mentioned, this is for everybody. Even unbelievers have a conscience. Again, it's part of the inner man, the inner soul of a man or woman because they're made in the image of God. Even in here, it uses the Greek word phuse. That is, it's their very nature. That's why it says in verse 14, instinctively doing the things of the law. Now, there are, of course, when... Even when we were unsaved and somebody that does something evil, we say that was evil. It's wrong to steal. Why do people think it's wrong to steal? Because they're made in the image of God and they have a work or an effect of the law of God in their heart because they're made in the very image of God. It can be suppressed. It can be rejected and denied. But but that's why... even the, an atheist isn't, please steal from me. Please steal from me. He'll say, no, don't steal my stuff. Why? He's made in the image of God. And there is an, an effect, a work of God's person and law in his heart that says, this is right and this is wrong. Further, when you look at this, this verse, you see that this little passage it has this uh, ability to testify. You can see that in verse 15, bearing witness. It, it testifies to what is right and, and, and what is wrong. It gives a, a type of right and wrong principle. God, God, forgive me and he has forgiven me. And I've shared this with my kids, but when I was young, I, I would vandalize. You know, cars can have those uh, very pretty decals. We used to rip those off, and I'd put it in a shoebox and collect them. I, I, I was a thief, but the whole time, I knew it was wrong. Why? I was skipping church. So I, I wasn't hearing the gospel, the word preached, because I was made in the image of God, and my conscience was testifying, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. And then even, it brings accusations, or it, it can defend us, and you see that in verse 15. It can say, what you're doing is right, what you're doing is wrong. That's righteous, that's unrighteous. It is a great gift that God has given us. As a believer, we have the Holy Spirit, which also brings conviction, and I think makes our conscience, uh, it cleanses it, makes it more 
invigorated. But praise God that we have this conscience, this, again, apparatus, mechanism of the inner person that says, this is the right thing to do, this is the wrong thing to do. Sometimes maybe your friends or loved ones will say, you know, God was telling me not to do this. And they might mean that God is inside of them speaking to them directly. They they might mean that. But most likely, in context of the Bible, it's probably the gift of the conscience that God has given to them that is saying, don't do that. That's not right. Or do this. Like, you know, there are times when you think, I should help this person. Certainly that can be the Holy Spirit, but it's the Holy Spirit working through the word you know upon your conscience saying, this is the right thing to do because it's love. It's love. And if we're made an image of God, then we want to seek to love. This is the the function of the conscience. It can convince us of our guilt or it can even seek to convince us, you know what, you're innocent of this. You did the right thing. You see that in verse 15. It accuses them or defends them. However, you can look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. The conscience can be hardened. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared, and by those who believe and know the truth. So here, there are these false teachers, and they actually were, apparently unknowingly, they had walked away from the faith, and they were listening to evil spirits, Demonic spirits, uh, spirits. They had become hypocrites, you can see in verse 2. They were pretending to be godly, but they were not. They sought to have a higher standard, right? Don't get married and don't eat certain kinds of food. Maybe they were teaching that this was the epitome of godliness. You don't get married. You don't eat certain kinds of food. But here, 1 Timothy 4 says that that's deceitful spirits, demonic spirits. They're, they're play-acting. And their conscience has been seared. It's, it's you know, like if you uh, sear a steak, it, it's been burned. So it becomes useless. It's not effective anymore. It's not working properly. It's been desensitized. And I think we all know how that is, right? We can, if we're not careful, even as believers, do certain things in our life, and the Spirit of God, and even the Spirit of God through our conscience, says, Tom, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. But if I or you keep on doing it, then we get hardened in that area. And then our effectiveness becomes... Less. It's not just that you're sinning against God and sinning against others. Your effectiveness, your, your usefulness, and even with that, your joy is going to be less because you've made your conscience hard. Your conscience has become unhealthy, not because you have sin, but because you have unconfessed, persistent sin that you're not dealing with and you're pretending to be something you're not. That's what First Timothy 2 and 3 is saying. And remember, these people, these false teachers, they were pretending to be godly. And it seems, in some sense, at least outwardly, they had a lot of morality. But inwardly, God says in verse 2, they're liars. And they had gotten to a point where They weren't listening to the gift that God gives each man and woman. And that is a conscience that says, that's wrong, don't do that. We persist in sin, a certain sin, and we don't attempt to deal with it. Then our hearts are going to be hard unless God does what? Hebrews 12, 5. 
God comes after us and to give us a discipline to break us out of that sin. We'll talk more about this in a few moments. So we have this gift that God has given us that says, that's right, that's wrong, don't do that, do this. That was good, good job. That was a bad job, don't do that. But we have to be careful that we don't persist in unconfessed, undealt with sin, because that will hurt our conscience. And then third, there's there's many there's other passages, but another passage is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In 1 Corinthians, this chapter dealing with, sorry, I said 11, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 8, dealing with Christian liberty. Christian liberty. It's a great passage. And you can see here in verse 11, for through your knowledge, he who was weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you've sinned against Christ. And then if you look up above at verse 17, and their conscience being weak is defiled. The context is food's been sacrificed to an idol. Should these believers then eat that food? Paul says, you can eat the food. <laughs> There's not really a, a God that's behind that idol. That, that food is fine. You can eat that food. But for some believers who are not as mature in their faith, if they were to eat that food for them, it would be what? It would be sinful for them. They're thinking, I, I, I can't do that. I, I'm not going to do it. When I first got saved, I took every single secular record I have, the old vital, and I broke it to the glory of God. Bang! And about like five years later, I was like, oh, shoot. <laughs> what did I do that for? Because there were some great instrumental albums and even some other albums. I was like, that guy had a Beatles record that I just smashed to pieces. Oh, these believers here were weak and they didn't have a, their conscience was not informed with the biblical knowledge yet that it was okay to eat that food. But Paul does say in verse 11 and 12, but if you that are stronger and your understanding, not because you're a macho Christians, but you've been taught longer and you're able to understand things a little bit better. If you take this food that you bought in the market and then go up to your friend who doesn't want to eat that and go, check this out. You're missing out. If you did something like that, then you're sinning against who? Look at verse 12. You're sinning against Christ. So if I flaunt my liberty with a, another believer that has a hard time in this like gray area, if I flaunt it in front of that person, it's not just that I sin against that person, I sin against Christ. But the point I want us to see is the conscience can be what in verse 12? Wounded. And it can be weak. So if it's weak, that means we need to build it up. Our conscience can be wounded. It needs to be healed. But I also need to be careful that I don't offend somebody's conscience. Maybe offend is the wrong word. That I don't wound their conscience. So the conscience then is not this gift that God has given us as part of our humanity that always is static, that always stays the same. It can be wounded, it can be hardened, it can be weak. It can grow, it can become healthy. And then finally, thinking about what the conscience is, just go to 1 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And again, this is just a preliminary type of survey sermon that we're doing here. More could be said. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verse 3. But to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. For I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I'm not by this acquitted. The one who examines me is the Lord. 
So Paul is saying, look, you better be very careful about judging me, and I'm going to be careful about judging you. In fact, I don't even investigate myself and and bring myself into my own mind and scrutinize my own life. And now, in a certain way, that can be healthy, but that can go to extremes. And I think that's what Paul is talking about when he says, I don't even examine myself. Because in Second Corinthians thirteen five, he tells the Corinthians, examine yourself. Here, he's talking about, I think, this type of very intrusive investigation, like bringing yourself or somebody else before this court of opinion. And so Paul says, I am conscious. That is, there's nothing inside of him that's accusing him, saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. You've been a hypocrite. You've been a liar. You have terrible motivations for doing ministry. You're, you're a false apostle. Paul saying, I'm not aware of anything in my conscience that's, I'm not conscious of this happening inside of me. But know what he says. Yet, by this, I am not acquitted. Because my conscience is clear, it doesn't mean I'm off the hook. You can say, I have a clear conscience. That's fantastic. But God might think otherwise. I know there are areas in my life where, in my head and my heart, I can say I have a clean conscience in that area. And then there have been areas where, like, after 10 or 15 years, I've been... Oh, that was bad. <laughs> I was wrong. And I'm sure there are other areas where even now my conscience is clear. But as you and I grow in Christ, we realize, you know, now when I look back on that, that was actually selfish. And yet I had a clear conscience. What happened? I grew in Christ. So we have to understand that the conscience is a gift from God, but we are fallen people, and the conscience can be wounded, it can be weak, it can be a great gift, but we have to be careful because it can be hardened. But it's not the last word. The conscience, your conscience, my conscience, is not infallible. <laughs> it's not the written word of God. But it is a gift that we have that we do need to See, to keep it healthy so it can be a blessing to us. So then, with that in mind, how do you keep the conscience healthy? How do we keep this this apparatus, this dynamic within our inner person that God has given us, that's, as believers, it's invigorated with the Spirit of God? How do we keep it healthy so it blesses us? Number one, and I'm just going to give you four. Number one. Train it up. Train it up. All the time, whether baseball, football, or soccer, you'll have a coach, and he'll get new players, and he'll seek to what? Train them up. Seek to equip them with new skills and new dedication. And we need to train up our conscience. How do we do that? Number one way is to read and study the Word of God. In order to buttress our conscience and to give it the equipment that it needs, in order to function well, you need to give it the Word of God. We want to have healthy bodies, and we spend lots of money and time to to be healthy. You also need to spend money, time, I'm being sure that you are reading the Word, studying the Word to have a healthy conscience. Colossians 3.16, all of us know, let the Word of God dwell within you. How? Richly, richly. I heard a statistic recently that said that only about 30% of believers read their Bible daily. I would suspect that that's true. The sad thing is, I think it was 50% for pastors. 50% of pastors don't read their Bibles daily. If you want to have a healthy conscience that's strong, that works properly, 
you have to read and study the Bible. When I say read, it's not you get up and you read maybe a chapter and you close it and we can all do this. You've said, okay, I did my duty. No, study the Bible. Study a book of the Bible. Study a, a text of scripture. Get whatever tools you need and even if it's just 15 minutes a day, 10 minutes a day, yes, read the Bible comprehensively, but also in depth. Or you can even take a, a topic. For example, take a speech, the, the use of our tongues, and study the, the use of your tongue. All Scripture is God-breathed and is what? Profitable, useful for training and godliness. To rebuke us, to help us to become more and more righteous. So t- take James 3. You want to know how to talk better to your spouse, to your kids, the kids, to your parents, and to our fellow Christians and our neighbors? Study James chapter 3. Or study Ephesians 4.29. Ephesians 4.29 is one of those verses I try not to memorize it because I I don't like it. It's so convicting. I want to stay away from it. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Because there are times when you and I, I'm not saying everybody, maybe especially us men, we can joke with one another in such a way that we are cutting the other person down. And then everybody laughs. Well, the more that we study God's word, especially on speech, maybe you study it from the book of Proverbs, maybe Ephesians, maybe James 3, and then you come up with your own, maybe one sheet of paper on how you can reform your speech according to God's word. And then that helps your conscience. That's something that your conscience can use to say, Tom, it's fine to joke, but are you ripping somebody apart? That, that, that's not fine. That's not good. And so we need to train up our conscience, make it healthy, make it strong by giving it a sincere, studious amount, understanding of God's word. If your conscience is weak, if your conscience is wounded, if your conscience is, is hard, maybe it's because you're not reading the Word, and maybe not studying the Word. How many of you are really studying the Bible? I don't mean reading books about the Bible, but actually studying the Bible. All Christians were commanded to let God's Word and draw within us. In Psalm 119, read all of it to really seek to understand it and know what it says. Secondly, not just train it up, that is, we train up our conscience. We need to be ruthless with our own sin. Be ruthless with our own sin. Deal with your own sin. As we said, persisting in sin can put these weighty shackles of guilt upon you. And so your conscience, and if you're a believer, it's the Holy Spirit and your conscience together, which is saying what to you over and over again? Guilty, 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 dirty, guilty, 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 guilty. And I think you, almost every single one of you know exactly what I mean. At times you have felt that, like screaming in in, in your heart. Guilty, guilty, guilty. And it's not just because we sin. Well, we sin every day. I sin every day. But there are certain sins in our life that God wakes, wakes us up to and works on us that can be persisting. And if we're not seeking to be ruthless with them, then that will keep our conscience, or it can take it to a place of being weak or hardened. That's why I think you have in different places in Scripture that you have, for example, like Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, that says, Therefore, and this 
is something that John was talking about this morning. Colossians, not this verse, I don't think. Colossians 3, 5, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to, then it gives a list of sins. But the literal Greek is put to death or even kill, slay. these sinful areas that are in your life. And it's the thought that we don't just play with sin that's in our lives. We don't just permit its existence or not just do less of it. You know what? I've decided I'm such a great Christian. I'm, I'm going to steal less. Why would you say? I'm going to murder less today. No. Even if it's in, in the mind, that's still sin. And so we seek to be ruthless with it, with our sin. Our Romans chapter 8, verse 14, has very similar language. Verse, start with verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And verse 14 is saying, if you are truly a son of God, if you truly are a child of God, and if you have the Spirit of God, then the Spirit of God is going to be working in you to do this. What an incredible privilege it is to be a believer so that we have the Holy Spirit working in us and we also have a conscience that's also saying, don't do this, do this. And then the Spirit of God is also invigorating all of that. Calling us to be ruthless with our own sin. Not to permit it to just keep going on and on and on without addressing it. And, and again, I'm not saying that, that we never sin, we reach a state of perfection, no. But if we're not attacking sinful areas in our life, seeking to reduce it and even eventually not have that sin plague us, then you know, our conscience is going to be not as strong, not as healthy as it could be. What do we do when we do sin? As you know, first we keep short accounts with God. We confess our sin. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sin. To forgive us from all unrighteousness. And even in Matthew 6.12, when Jesus says, here's how you should pray, one of the prayers that we should have in our prayers is, Lord, what? Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Daily we can confess some sin, right? I, I think so. So we want to keep short accounts with God. I, I try to at night when I lay down, Lord, here's my sin. I blew at these different areas. Lord, please forgive me. Thank you for that forgiveness. Thank you, Lord. Maybe you would say, I'm not conscious of, of any sin in my life. I'd say, well, then maybe you're not a believer. <laughs> Number one. Maybe you're a believer and you just need God to wake you up. Well, you can pray what David prays in Psalm 139. First, we confess our sin, but we can say, God, show me how sinful I am. It's a hard prayer to make. You can say, Lord, show me the sinful ears of my life that I may deal with them. Psalm 139 talks about God's omnipresence. He's everywhere. He's omniscient. He knows everything. And then at the end of that, what then should we do? Search me, at verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. So we seek to be ruthless with our own sin. That involves when we do sin, we confess it. We say, Lord, I'm sure there's other areas of my life where I have sinned that I don't see it. Please make that known to me. And God will. He'll answer that prayer. It won't always be easy. I don't think it's ever been easy. If I've said, Lord, show me other areas of my life where I sin. I don't think it's ever, never, it's never a happy time at that moment. It could be happy afterwards to have the joy of the Lord when you deal with sin. And then I would say, 
also to be ruthless with your own sin. Be sure that you kill hypocrisy. We saw that in 1 Timothy 4.2, the hypocrisy of liars. That doesn't mean that you go around and tell everybody exactly all the horrors of your mind. It doesn't mean spouses that, that you go to your spouse and and this secret, secret thought that you've had for a long time, you share every detail of it. I'm not saying that necessarily, but what I'm saying is don't don't play games. Don't don't pretend. Because what happens is we can pretend to be righteous. We can tend to be godly. We can pretend to, even if we're not a Christian, we can have a facade that, okay, I'm not a Christian, but, you know, I'm really a pretty good person because I'm not like Hitler. So I'm a pretty good person after all, when really there's a lot of secret sin in your life that nobody knows about except for God and your conscience. And that that guilt will do what to you? It will eat you away. But that's why we go to the cross. Last week's sermon. That's why we take refuge in Jesus Christ. We have eternal redemption. There's full pardon. The blood, his death, his atoning sacrifice cleanses us from all sin. And so we run to him and say, Jesus, forgive me. Cover me. But you have to deal with these secret sins that plague you. That's why, and we've said it before, you've heard it, that Jim Owen, Jim Owen, John Owen, Jim Owen is my teacher at Master's College. John Owen said, be killing sin, or sin will what? Kill you. See, sin is not your friend, especially for you young people. When I was the age of my, well, younger than my kids now, I thought sin was my friend. And when we sin, we're saying sin is my friend, but it's not. It's your enemy. He wants to cut your throat and gut you. It does. And so we seek to be ruthless with it. We attack sin, seek to overcome it. When we don't, we confess it to God and we hide in what Christ did, not in what we can do. And then that helps our conscience to to stay pure and healthy and vibrant and, and it's up to date. We're in the word of God. Train it. Be ruthless with your own sin. Number three, obsess about Christ and salvation. Obsess about Christ and salvation. When you read the the book of Hebrews, over and over again, it's about the supremacy and superiority of Christ. And this is true so much, right, of the New Testament. The the book of 1 Thessalonians, ultimately, it's about what? Christ and his return. Colossians is about Christ. Philippians is so many verses about Christ. Ephesians, all the riches that we have in Christ. Galatians, all the freedom that we have in Christ. You know, Romans, all the Gospels. From Genesis 3.15 to the last verse of Revelation, it's all pointing under God the Father and for his glory. It's all pointing to Christ. The more obsessive we are, about Christ, that he is our all in all, that will help our conscience to be functioning properly because we're made in the image of God. And if we're made in the image of God, then we want to exalt the Lord. And so if we are doing that, then our conscience is going to be happy and it's going to be working effectively. I think that's why you have Philippians 3.3. Paul says he glories in Christ Jesus. And that he said, I'll consider everything in my life to be rubbish, even to be dung compared to the excellence of knowing Christ Jesus. Paul, in a good holy sense, was obsessive about Christ. That's why I think you have in Hebrews 12. He says, Spirit of God, fix your eyes on who? On Christ. And I have it already in my notes, but we saw this in Sunday school. Romans chapter 12. God must want us to be refreshed with these verses because it was in Sunday school and it's here in my notes. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is a spiritual service of worship. 
And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We should be so obsessed with God and with Christ and with the Lord. We should be so God-driven and Christ-driven that we offer all that we are up to Him. Scripture says to live is Christ. And Paul says in Colossians 3, 3, that my life is hid with God and Christ. What a beautiful statement. My life is hid with God and Christ. And Christ is my life, even it says in that same passage. I think a great example of this is Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, where right three times it says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, to the praise of the glory of his grace, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And then even chapter 2 goes into this prayer, and it flows even all the way into chapter 3, that that power that raised up Christ from the dead, that power also belongs to every single believer. Every believer also is raised up, at least spiritually from the dead, and one day physically, that resurrection power of God in Christ, every believer has it, and they're made new in Christ. And even if you're thrown in prison like the Apostle Paul, God can still use you and fill you and do way beyond all they could ever ask, think, or imagine, all to the praise of the glory of His grace. How does this relate to our conscience? Again, going back to Hebrews 9.14, we serve a living God. God doesn't need you to serve him. It's not that God is, Tom, I really need you. God, does, God didn't need the Apostle Paul. But God calls us to serve, and it's a pleasure and a joy and a reward to serve him. Hebrews 9.14, but he is a living God. He wants our heart. With your spouse and your children and your friends, you, you don't want just a, a corpse. You want somebody that you can relate to, that loves you. You love them and they love you. And we want that because we're made in God's image. I think this is the idea of serving the living God. We actually delight in God and we delight in Christ. We're not just tagging on Christianity to our life. For me to live is Christ. Everything else is added on, but not Christ. He is my Lord and my Savior and my all in all. Again, it goes back. I have said this so many times, probably getting tired of it. <laughs> Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that God is good. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. With those who fear him, there is no lack. There is no want. Because we both fear and love God. He is all in all. I have him. I have all that I need. And so it's, though I'm imperfect and though I sin, I'm not wanting truly to sin. And so I want to deal with my sin. And so that helps me to keep my conscience clean. So what do you obsess over the most? And I'm convicted by this. Is it a hobby that you're more obsessed with? I can get into a rut of a hobby. I don't know how many videos I watched on skydiving. I think I probably watched a hundred videos on skydiving. I watched a, you know, before I jumped out of that plane. I, I think I watched a hundred videos on skydiving. I gotta do it. I have to know every single thing about skydiving. Everything. And I, I can be that way. I can be so obsessed about. I have to know everything about baking a chocolate cake. Everything. Everything. Who who invented chocolate cake? I'm going to do a whole paper on it. I can. It's like, what in the world? What is that? Am I that way about Jesus? It's not wrong to have a hobby. God gives us good gifts. But may we all obsess more over knowing Jesus. And then, number four, and we'll close up here. I don't have to spend long here because we've already seen it. Live under God's judgment, not man's or yours. Going back to 1 Corinthians 4, 4, where Paul very clearly says that the one that has the last word is God.
God has the last word. I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I'm not by this acquitted, for the one who examines me is the Lord. We must always live with the realization that there is a day where I'm going to see Jesus. It's not that I'll be judged for my sin. My sin's already been judged. But I will be judged for my reward. And it even says here in verse 5 that each man's praise will come to him from God. It seems each of us will receive praise from God. That's crazy. But quickly and in context, the idea then is because I will meet God and he will give me praise that I'm not living for you and you're not living for me. In a foundational sense, you're not my judge. And I'm also not your judge. The one that is the true judge is Jesus. He sees and knows everything and you and I soon will see him. Each of us. So in light of that, we want to seek to keep a healthy conscience and do what the Lord wants us to do. That we can receive lots of praise from him. Not because we're so spiritual, but because we wanted to know him. So then, it's wise to know how to stay healthy. It is. Learn how to stay healthy. Seek to be healthy. It's also even more wise to have a healthy conscience. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've saved us. Lord, you, you've given us your Holy Spirit as believers, but you've even given us this, this apparatus of the heart, this element of the heart, this effect of the very image of God inside of us that tells us this is right, this is wrong. Lord, may we keep our conscience healthy and pure and soft but mature. Lord, we give you praise. We give you glory. Amen.